This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 16, Summer Hill. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I hope everyone is getting geared up for the weekend and the impending holidays. To those that celebrate, Merry Christmas and good luck. Because I know I always need luck to get through the holidays and the new year. My first order of business is letting you guys know that there will be no episode released next Friday. So December 28th, 2018, no new episode. I'm going to use an extra week to first relax, but also research, catch up, and make sure that I have really great shows for you guys in 2019. I'm really excited about this new year. I don't want to jinx it, but great things are happening at both of my jobs and just life in general. I look forward to seeing where this podcast continues to take me and all of the new people that it's connecting me with. This week, I really wanted to do another Atlanta neighborhood, and Summerhill has been popping up in my reading all the time. It's not a neighborhood that I'm overly familiar with, but like I said, it kept appearing, so I'm calling it a sign of some sort. It's the neighborhood where Leo Frank lived. It was decimated by highways, two stadiums, it has Olympic history, and there was a riot. All in one neighborhood. So this is a really exciting episode. First, let me try and orient ourselves here because if you know me and my map skills, I need this more than you. Current Summerhill, and that word current is important, is situated west of Grand Park, and it's wrapped, in a sense, by I-20 along the top and I-85 along the west. The southern border, according to Google Maps, would be Ormond Street. Now, the reason I say current is because the neighborhood originally went further north and even further west, but if you look at it now, it's so hard to imagine because all of you see is a thousand lanes of highway. And the easiest way for most people to understand where this is would be the old Brave Stadium, aka Turner Field. I'm guessing everyone's been there at least once. I mean, I hate baseball, but I've even been there a few times, especially when I first moved here. But that is pretty much Summer Hill, so that's the neighborhood. But I bet you didn't even realize you were in a neighborhood or that it even had a name when you were at Turner Field, and we'll sort of talk about that exact issue later. First, let's go back. And in Atlanta, that always means before the war. Before the Civil War, all of this land was owned by attorney William Jennings, who chose, as many large landowners did, to subdivide his acreage after the war and essentially create little settlements or neighborhoods. If Jennings rings any bells, there was a shanty town named after him, Jenningstown, which is where Atlanta University was built. So I talked about that in the Gaines Hall episode. This new neighborhood would become home to newly freed African Americans and new Jewish immigrants arriving in Atlanta. For black residents of Atlanta, they had just stepped out of the shackles of slavery and there weren't a multitude of places that were available for them to live. Summerhill, Jenningstown, and what we now call the Old Fourth Ward, they were kind of the top three. When it comes to Summerhill and how it got its name, I only found one story in one book. So take this veracity with a grain of salt, but it was named by Armstead Bailey, which was one of the earliest black settlers of Summer Hill, and it says he was also one of the first people to be buried at Westview when it opened. Now the dates do match up. He died the year that Westview Cemetery was opened, but Westview was segregated, and I'm assuming he would have been buried in Rest Haven, which was the African-American section of Westview. But anyway, I'm just putting it out there that I'm sure this is right, but if anyone does know the real truth, just email me. One of the first things that these new African-American residents did is set up a church. 
I mean, this is the South. There were ties in the community to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME, and there was an AME church already on Jenkins Street. Pop quiz, loyal listeners, know which church I'm talking about? It's Big Bethel. I'm going to start a little game where, like, can I mention Big Bethel in each episode? Um, But it was Big Bethel, so a committee from Summerhill requested that Big Bethel send them a clergy member to organize a church in their own community. In 1866, they sent J.A. Wood, came down, and he built a brush arbor at the corner of Crumley and Martin Street. They would hold services under that brush arbor for, I think, a few weeks or maybe a few months, and then they would build a church at Hammock Place and Martin Street. The intersection is still there. There is actually a small church building there now, which I love, but it is not Woods Chapel. And Woods Chapel is what they named this new church after the Reverend Wood from Big Bethel. This Woods Chapel congregation morphed through a few more church buildings and a new name, but the congregation continues to formally exist as Allen Temple AME, which is still in service. You can go on Sunday. The second church that often gets mentioned in the early history of Summerhill is Clark's Chapel. Founded in 1866, it was named for Bishop Davis Clark, who I think was the first elected African descent minister in the Methodist Conference. Clark College is also named for him in Atlanta, and this church was actually where the college was really born. I think they had the first classes in the basement. The Methodist Episcopal Church created the Freedmen Aid Society, Um, And the purpose of that was to establish schools and teacher training. So Clark's Chapel was formed through that. It stayed in the Summerhill neighborhood for about a decade before moving, and they purchased Lloyd Street Church, which was predominantly white. So sometimes when you read about Clark's Chapel, you'll often see it mentioned as an integrated church. And essentially it was. It just didn't start out that way. It happened a little bit later. And these are just two churches that everyone mentions, but the list keeps going. I found reference to a Bethlehem Baptist church that was formed in the 1870s, and I'm sure there are just a lot more that I'm missing. After churches, the next building we'll see are schools. And this community would start one of the first schools for African-American children in Atlanta. Established around 1867 by that Freedmen's Aid Society, um, and also by the help of a man named Frederick Ayer. So originally it's called the Frederick Ayer School, but In 1872, the Atlanta School Board takes it over and they kind of lump it into that first schools um, for black children. So sometimes the dates can be different, like that they started in 1872, but it was really 1867. When Atlanta School Board takes it over is when they start naming it the Summerhill School. I did some brief reading about it, but my favorite story is that the black community in Atlanta initially contributed when it first opened by raising money to pay the white missionary teacher's salary, but eventually they began to push for black teachers. Um, And this was about 1873, which coincides with the first graduating class of teachers from Atlanta University. Also talked about in Gaines Hall episode. Um, But I love it. It's like, you know, they had their first graduating class and they're like, hey, we're ready to have black teachers now. The Summerhill School was at the intersection of Richardson and Martin Streets, and that intersection is still there. The school, however, is not. Uh, Summerhill School was renamed in 1923 for E.P. Johnson, and it stayed open until the 70s. By the 80s, it had been vacant for a whole decade, and they demolished it. As I mentioned earlier, this neighborhood is mainly African-American and Jewish. 
1881, Eastern European Jews, especially those from Russia, were immigrating to Atlanta. The existing Jewish community was generally from Western Europe, usually Germany, and they were different. They were wealthier, um, much more liberal members of society. For these new arrivals, this is not the reality that they come from. These newcomers are mostly poor, they speak Yiddish, and they are holding really orthodox religious views. So this isn't exactly dry. So this doesn't exactly jive with the Reformed Judaism of the Temple. The Ahavath Ahim, I probably totally butchered that, so I'm so sorry I tried, uh, was founded in 1887 in a room on Gilmer Street, and then it moved to a building at the corner of Piedmont and Gilmer. In 1921, they built a synagogue at Washington and Woodward Avenue, which was the heart of the conservative Jewish population. Now, when I talk about all these streets, if you looked at them on a map, so much of this, like, you're going to be like, this is not Summerhill, what are you talking about? Um, But really, again, it's hard to see because all of these streets were kind of under what the highway is today, so the downtown connector or things like that. The German Jewish neighborhood of Washington Rawson, it's really lived above the I-20 line that we have now. So it's interesting to see what was taken for this construction because we lost the synagogue that I'm just talking about in 1958. Not to complicate things too much, but Washington Rawson was considered kind of its own neighborhood. It wasn't really named until after. It was just referenced by streets. But essentially where the old Turner Field and the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium lay, um, that was the neighborhood. And I'm skipping a little bit ahead here, but I just want to give you an idea of what used to be where there's vast of parking lots at today. In the 1870s, this was the wealthy, mostly Jewish part of town, and it was right up there with Peachtree Street and Inman Park. So these are mansions, um, beautiful Victorian homes, so I so I read, of people that were governors, senators, attorneys. There were several synagogues here, and there was also the Standard Club, which I think I talked about that in the episode on Hotel Row, um, and then the Hebrew Orphans Home as well. Okay, so back to Summerhill proper. The neighborhood was set up with its commercial and residential mixed together, so not one large business district. Instead, you might have one store amid several homes on a block. What I find so interesting is that around 1899, most of Atlanta is racially mixed. Summerhill had black and white residents living on the same streets. And the reason that this works is because at the time, houses were designated as a black house or a white house. So a house could be rented to any white family, but once it was rented to a black family, that house was deemed black from then on. Um, At the time, there were such strict social rules that sharing a block, it just didn't bother people because if a white person was walking down the sidewalk and a black person was coming towards them, that black person knew to step off the sidewalk or to cross the street to the other sidewalk. So it's interesting because I, I think in my brain, I remember before reading this that, you know, it was very segregated, but neighborhoods were not. The trolley system begins to service the neighborhood in the 30s and 40s, which ran down Capitol Avenue or Hank Aaron Drive. Uh, and by the 50s, we start to see the area show its age and many affluent residents had been long gone. They'd moved to more northern suburbs. Also in the 50s and 60s, most of the stores and commercial businesses are gone. So what you're left with is a depressed area. The people who are still living there are without the means to move. Um, There's nowhere for them to shop, not even food. I read that Summerhill was one of the worst food deserts in Atlanta. 
1946, there's something we call the Lochner Report, um, and I'll put up a link in the show notes for you guys, but it's basically a grand plan of where Atlanta's highways and interstates should go. It's really interesting to read because there are pages with, you know, verbatim quotes saying, hey, it's really easy to get this land in this crappy neighborhood. Nobody cares. And there's even pictures of neighborhoods that were deemed good for tearing down. Atlanta interstates honestly need their own episode, and I do hope to work on that soon. But all over the United States, the passing of the Interstate Act, the building of these new arteries, coincided with the urban renewal idea. Notice that the Atlanta neighborhoods that have been cleared or bisected by highways, so Grand Park, Sweet Auburn, Summerhill, Copenhill, I mean, Copenhill doesn't even exist. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. No one seems to notice the destruction of a neighborhood when the neighborhood is majority black or Hispanic or crime-ridden or poverty-stricken. The areas I spoke about earlier that were considered part of Summerhill, those were taken away by Interstate I-20, the Downtown Connector, and Interstate 85. And take I-20. It's common knowledge that the placement of I-20 acted as a dividing line between black Atlanta and white Atlanta. But like I said... Hopefully it's own episode coming soon. As if highways were not enough, we have urban renewal and professional sports to finish the job. In 1957, then-Mayor William Hartsfield created an urban renewal plan to clear away a portion of Summerhill. Um, and if you don't know what urban renewal is or what it did, the city bought land or used eminent domain to bulldoze homes, shops, roads, move residents to public housing with this promise of revitalizing the area. The statistics are not complete, but it's estimated that 68,000 people in Atlanta were forced to move because of urban renewal, and 19 out of every 20 were black. So many cities around the country have urban renewal horror stories. I've never talked about it before, um, but Newburgh, New York, is where I lived right before moving here. I had my first apartment there. It's a great place. I love it. Maybe I'll talk about it more one day. But it has a lot of struggles. And during urban renewal, it lost at least four or five blocks of dense waterfront businesses. Um, so I, I remember seeing the horrors of urban renewal in other places before now seeing it in Atlanta. In 1963, Mayor Ivan Allen invited the owner of Kansas City Athletics to Atlanta to persuade him to bring a sports team here. The story is that the man didn't see anything he liked. Until the last minute when Allen showed him some urban renewal land, which was apparently perfect. The deal ended up not being approved by the American League, and it fell through. But by 1964, Allen told the city that he had an unidentified team that was interested but would only move if there was a stadium in place. There is a B-side version of the story, if you will, of why this exact location was chosen for the future Fulton County Stadium. The area of the stadium was a buffer zone between white downtown Atlanta business community and a majority black Summer Hill and surrounding neighborhoods. At this time in Atlanta, and honestly, I think this has been a problem since the day after the Civil War, there was a dire need for low-income housing. African-American leadership in the city was pressing the mayor for more housing, and then downtown leadership is pressing the mayor to keep black residents um, kind of away from the downtown business district. So, in general, Ivan Allen did a lot of great forward-thinking things in the civil rights era of Atlanta, but he also ordered the Peyton Wall. If you don't know what that is, I just posted about it on social media, but, you know, maybe just Google it and it'll blow your mind. Um, at the end of the day, he was a politician, and I think he wanted an outcome that was either going to make everyone happy or was going to avoid conflict. 
building this new stadium seemed to solve this for him. He kept the downtown business people happy because he made a buffer. And then he promoted this economic impact and new jobs of the new stadium in the poor community. The new stadium was finished in 1966. While we're talking about Mayor Allen, uh, he would also go on to deal with another incident in Summerhill in 1966. A few days before Labor Day, the Atlanta police detective and a patrolman spot Harold Prather driving a car at Ormond and Capitol. Apparently, he had a history of car thefts. He had been suspected in a recent one, so they attempt to pull him over. Instead of complying with police orders, Harold starts running and gets shot two times. He makes it to his mother's front porch, where he lays in a pool of blood. Now, he lived, as far as I can read, but the shooting incited a mass riot in Summerhill. Thousands gathered, frustrated by ongoing police brutality in their neighborhood. I won't go into too much detail about it. I am going to post a link to a book that has some um, great information on it. But I definitely think it's one of those Atlanta stories that almost no one talks about. And also the parallels to current frustrations all over America are are really eye-opening for me. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC for short, got involved in the riot as well. And I want to go back in the timeline to an earlier civil rights story. I have wanted to do an episode about this topic for a long time, so let's see if I can pull it off. But in 1881, 20 black washerwomen uh, met in a church in Summerhill to establish a labor society. Washerwomen was really the majority profession for black women of the time, and most of them lived in Summerhill. I'm not going to get into too much detail about that, but I love that from the tie-in from like 1881, labor and civil rights, all the way through 1966. Summerhill would change dramatically again uh, for all of you old-time Atlantans. Atlanta won its bid to host the Olympic Games, and organizers set their sight on Summerhill and the neighborhoods surrounding it. The new Olympic Stadium was built in 1996, and by the end of the Games, it was fitted to accommodate the Atlanta Braves and renamed Turner Field. Of course, we all remember two years ago when the Braves left Atlanta for the suburbs, but the old stadium has once again have a new purpose, um, and it is home to Georgia State football team. So now we're at modern-day Summerhill, and it is changing by the minute, if not by the second. The entire neighborhood is essentially being redeveloped all sort of at the same time by the same company. But really the area where the two stadiums were and then the main thoroughfare heading down, so Georgia Avenue, what used to be an entire street full of abandoned buildings. There is now, I think, one article a day telling me which fancy new restaurant or coffee shop is moving in. Now, I'm generally not a fan of this contrived development thing. I much more prefer organic, natural growth and change, but I do at least appreciate that it's not like Moe's and Five Guys. All of these new businesses, um, they're Atlanta shops or restaurants with other locations, or there are new places being opened up by familiar chefs. So my favorite is that the owner of the General Muir is opening a barbecue restaurant and he's going to name it Woods Chapel as an homage to this first church in the neighborhood. So there you have it, the story of Summerhill, but also the new story that's forming right now. So please make sure you go down and take a look because if you wait too long, it's just going to keep on changing. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please leave an iTunes rating or review if you can spare a few minutes. As always, contact me on Instagram. Facebook, or you can email me, give me ideas for episodes, or just 
want to nerd out on history, I'm here for you. Have a great long weekend and I will talk to you guys in 2019.